0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
1: When it broke out in January, 94, then my brother, he went right away in the old building and he phoned me up right away. He says, Grant, this is the most significant spiritual event in our generation. You have to go and see this. It was through this I learned the heart of God for me and that I learned for the first time in my life that God knew my first name. Because I was on the floor in the, in the mezzanine there in Toronto and afterwards and we, we were praying and Jesus came right up to me and we were nose to nose and he said two words that changed my life. And he said, hello Grant. And I had no idea before that moment, and I've been a Christian my whole life that God knew my first name. I thought I was just an entry in his database. Like I just thought, you know, I just he was up there and you know, I could reach him in an emergency and I had his book, but then, when he came up and said, "Hello, Grant," I actually enjoyed chatting with you. It was like pfft. I was undone, and that—that that was one of the biggest moments of my life that happened on the floor there in Toronto.
2: This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens, and that was Grant Mullen one of perhaps millions of people who say they had life-changing experiences when they fell to the floor right here in this sanctuary, where once again I'm packed in for another Revival 25 conference session.
3: January 20, 1994, 25 years ago, none of us had any idea. We didn't know that we were going to go 12 and a half years of nightly meetings.
2: This is Episode 3, The Carpet Time.
3: Four million people came into this building, and they got their lives just revolutionized. Why? And that's what kept me going, friends. It wasn't that I was just so enamored with people falling, uh, although I still think it's funny and fun. but, But it was the transformation that happened inside of them. I'm just fascinated by... What the Holy Spirit
2: does. That again is John Arnott.
1: More
3: let your holy presence come on.
2: And his wife Carol. Together, they are the founding leaders of this spiritual movement that was characterized by all kinds of bizarre behavior. But on this episode, I want to focus in on all the falling to the ground. What was really happening to people when they fell back like that? What was happening when I fell back like that, when I was a teenager, and the Toronto Blessing had spread to my church in BC? We're talking getting slain in the spirit, which is when you get so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that you fall flat on your back. You were getting drunk in the spirit, which basically meant fits of laughter where you'd have to be carried out of the church to your car and driven home by your husband. Also on this episode, we'll start to consider a few non-supernatural explanations for the Toronto Blessing and trace its fascinating historical roots back to the Jesus freaks of the 1960s and 70s. But first, I think it's time to tell you about a major touchpoint in the history of the Toronto Blessing revival. For that, we're going back to December 1995. So imagine, at this point, The revival's been rocking for just shy of two years. People are talking about miracles and all these blissed-out moments of religious ecstasy. And during those first two years, there's been a constant influx of people flying in from all over the world. But on December 5th, 1995, a man named John Wimber flew into Pearson from LAX. But he wasn't there to worship. He was there to deliver bad news to John and Carol. Very bad news. You see, John Wimber was the leader of the Association of Vineyard Churches. That's the California-based charismatic denomination that John and Carol had chosen to be a part of when they first planted Toronto Airport Vineyard. Their views aligned. Being charismatic, John Wimber, John and Carol, they all had this mutual and very extreme focus on receiving the gifts of the Spirit and using those gifts in their everyday lives. You know them now, speaking in tongues, prayer for healing, prophecy. So what was the bad news? John Wimber had flown to Canada to kick Toronto Airport Vineyard out of the vineyard. Sounds like there had been just one too many disagreements on how to handle the increasingly bizarre phenomena that was happening there. And if the Toronto Blessing got too weird for the vineyard, that's really saying something. Because at its core, the vineyard is made up of those kinds of Christians who really let their freak flags fly. What's wild about that is that as we move our way further along the entire 12 and a half year timeline of the Toronto Blessing, the most bizarre stuff is still yet to come.
3: that you would stay perfectly in control and God's touch is going to be imperceivable. You know, you're just going to carry on like normal. Yeah, I, I feel a little light, a little good, a little bit of goose bumpy, a little bit of whatever. No, no, no. When he touches you, the miracle is you live through that.
2: That's John Arnott again at Revival 25. And after getting kicked out of the vineyard, he and Carol quickly rebranded as a non-denominational church that they called Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, or TACF. But despite the vineyard breakup, TACF would always have vineyard roots, roots that I have had so much fun tracing back to the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s. These original Jesus people were an on-fire group of mostly hippies that abandoned the counterculture and committed their lives to Jesus. Followers were called, and even called themselves, Jesus freaks. Let's meet a few of them, shall we? The audio you're about to hear is from a 2019 gathering, a reunion of sorts, in Anaheim, California. First up, Ken Gullickson. Today, there are approximately 2,400 vineyard-affiliated churches around the world, but it was Ken Gullickson that planted the first one.
4: In 73, 74, God called us to West L.A., Beverly Hills, and that was an awesome thing. A room filled with just crazy long-haired musicians and love to worship and love to bring their their, their instruments and, and sing along and play. And the people that came would boggle your mind if I wanted to be a people impressor.
2: Bob Dylan. That's the kind of name Ken could use if he really wanted to name drop. It's not a secret that Dylan attended Ken's earliest Bible studies and sang and played and worshipped at the very first Vineyard meetings. This would have been during Dylan's so-called Jesus phase. It was a time in his career where he released three gospel albums.
4: But we had crazy people. Bob Kardashian came.
2: Yep. A Kardashian, Robert Kardashian, best known for being O.J. Simpson's defense lawyer during his infamous 1995 murder trial. His ex-wife, Chris Kardashian, would later launch their family into superstardom with the launch of their reality show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians.
4: He's not a musician, by the way. Full on for the Lord. But this guy is at our first Bible study. I mean, already, I'm thinking, at the time, he was just a very wealthy lawyer, Like, you know, who are you? And how did you know where we were meeting in this little tiny living room up in Sun Valley? He sure didn't look like a musician. He looked very Armenian, which he was. And partway into our first couple of months, someone came up to me and said, well, what are you? What is this thing called? So when I prayed, what's our name? The Lord said, you are the vineyard. And I got really excited because the passages about the vineyards thrill me in Scripture. I love the concept of the fruit that multiplies, of the vines, of the vineyards, of the growth of, of wine. Everything you can imagine about vineyards is attractive to me. And, and I thought, I love that name. So we became the vineyard. That was the beginning of the vineyard in 1974 in Beverly Hills, and it grew. Exponentially and and exploded. Lonnie had a big part to do with planting the Vineyard Christian Fellowship, much of which nobody knows about.
2: Lonnie is Lonnie Frisbee. He was a primary leader in the Jesus movement, and he's another Jesus freak I want you to meet because a lot of people called him the spark that ignited the whole vineyard movement. But Lonnie Frisbee died in the early 90s, so we'll get to know him and the impact he had on the vineyard. Through the people who knew him best.
0: I'm Lonnie's spiritual son, and how do I know that? Because that's what he said. My mother and I were taking care of him the last two and a half years of his life.
2: That's James Gore. He also remembered Lonnie during that recent gathering in Anaheim. Lonnie, you'll need a visual, was straight out of Haight Ashbury. Long hair and beard, long robe, sparkling eyes, kind face. He looked like Jesus.
0: When I first met Lonnie, I was literally maybe five months out of being a coma. Um, a vegetable, if you will, that I had flatlined it seven times as a vegetable. And when I met Lonnie, a friend of ours, my mother and I said that there's this guy who's a modern-day John the Baptist, and he moves in signs and wonders and miracles Follow him.
2: In the first century AD, John the Baptist was a traveling Jewish preacher and purported relative of Jesus. Both John the Baptist and Lonnie Frisbee, in their own time, would become famous for water-baptizing repenters, which we'll learn more about in a moment. Except John did it in the River Jordan, and Lonnie did it in Corona Del Mar, a beachside town in California.
0: So my mother went to this meeting nearby here in the Anaheim Hills. And when she came home that night, she was just lit up. She's going, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing. Unbelievable. I'm oh all right, she goes, you have to go and meet this guy. I go to the meeting the next week, and I'm sitting on the couch thinking, praying, wondering. I just really gotten saved. And this guy comes up and sits right next to me, stares me in the face really closely. And he goes, I got a question for you. What did he look like? And I said, who? And he said, you've just stood in God's face. Who do you think I'm talking about? What did God look like? I said his eyes and mouth were the color of the sky, the heavens, that, this violet, blue, purple, a color you've never known or seen. He was giant, shiny, silvery white. I was looking into his face. I couldn't make out any features, but all I knew was one thing that I, I finally felt like I mattered. I finally felt like I was loved and I belonged. And he just goes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And he walked away. And the Spirit of God fell in that house. So powerfully, so radically. It's never been the same. That was the night that I met Lonnie.
5: I remember the late 80s when Lonnie Frisbee came rolling into the church I had in downtown, beautiful Anaheim, little warehouse in a gang neighborhood. Anybody heard of Seth Free? Anyway.
2: That's Pastor Phil Aguilar. He's the leader of Set Free Soldiers. It's a Christian biker club that he started up back in the 80s. Pastor Phil is best known for ministering to drug addicts and black sheep. That's how he came to be close friends with Lonnie. Because at different times in his life, Lonnie had definitely been both those things. A drug addict and a black sheep.
5: Anyway, this... um... Long-haired, hippie-looking character comes uh, walking across the street to come into this warehouse where I was having Set Free Church. And he had a motley-looking crew, if I may say so. (laughs) And uh, after service, Lonnie proceeded to show me pictures from these pictures. He turned the page for these wonderful things he had done for the Lord Jesus. He showed me pictures of a baptism, I think it was in Corona Del Mar, and uh, just uh, hundreds or thousands of people getting baptized there.
2: Corona Del Mar is a neighborhood in Newport Beach, California, and Lonnie famously baptized a lot of people there in the gentle waves with the towering seaside cliffs behind him. I was baptized by water when I was 12 years old. As it goes in evangelical tradition, It was a public confirmation of my then commitment to Jesus Christ. Face that way. I remember the whole event very clearly. My church had rented out a private swimming pool in the apartment building across the street from the church in Prince Rupert. I crossed both my arms across my chest, plugged my nose with one hand reaching up, and my pastor tipped me backwards into the water and right back up again, real quick. I remember it as a very, I don't know, like a very self-affirming thing to do. I think I felt like a good person. I felt like I was doing the right thing. And because I truly believed, this kind of outward sign of sacrifice and commitment was both thrilling and terrifying. Because who knows what this omnipotent dude up there might now have planned for my life. Okay, back to the Vineyard. The story goes that the Vineyard Church was born out of a revival that broke out at Calvary Chapel in your Belinda, California. Lonnie Frisbee had been the invited speaker that day. It was Mother's Day, 1980.
4: All the young people, he had all of the teenage young people line the aisles.
2: Again, that's Ken Gullickson, the original founder of the Vineyard,
4: and Lonnie simply prayed, "Holy Spirit, come!" You know that was all he ever did, really. Holy Spirit, come! And beginning at the front, it was like watching dominoes. They went down, left and right, and forward and backward. And they weren't—they weren't crying or screaming or weeping. Or it wasn't an, an overdone uh, kind of thing that you might see on a TV movie of Lonnie's life. It was, it was beautiful.
2: Whatever it was, it sounds a lot like what started happening on January 20th, 1994, in Toronto, Canada.
3: Problems in the neck be healed, in the spine, in the hips, in the kidneys, in the lungs.
2: Here at Revival 25, just like they did nearly every night for 12 and a half years... John and Carol impulsively work the conference stage together, a sort of intuitive faith-healing team.
3: Severe allergies that you're breaking out and you're in a rash and you can't eat anything, that is being healed right now. Just reach up and grab it. In Jesus' name,
2: be healed. While they're doing this, people are sporadically falling to the ground all over the sanctuary. Here and there, but mostly up at the front. So all these years later, even though, you know, the revival is over, technically, people are still shaking and falling to the ground here, right around the corner from Canada's busiest airport. But what I'm seeing at this conference is nothing close to what John describes happening that very first night, back in 94.
3: Right at that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit exploded across the room. And the room erupted into people falling, shaking, laughing, crying, screaming. And they're just all over the floor. And I'd never seen piles of people quite like that ever in my life.
2: More Heaven Bent after this.
6: Uh, Hello, I'm uh, Mick Brown and I'm a writer for The Telegraph magazine in London.
2: I first heard about Mick Brown from a couple women in the ladies' washroom at the Revival 25 conference. Turns out the story of what happened to him when he came to Toronto to report on the Toronto blessing, it's legendary around here. So I took my new bathroom friend's advice and I arranged an online interview with him as soon as I got back to Vancouver.
6: Uh, we got our own little room here. Nobody else can come in.
2: He was at the Daily Telegraph headquarters in London. You okay? Yeah, I'm just going to let my cat in. Oh, okay. I was at home. <laughs> Say hello to Man Shadow.
6: Oh, I love <laughs>
2: Mick and his Daily Telegraph photographer flew to Toronto on assignment back in November of 94. By then, it had been 10 months since strange things started happening at what was then still called Toronto Airport Vineyard.
6: Well, I I think I I probably put up the idea (laughs) Um, because I'd read about the Toronto Blessing and it had been covered, um, I wouldn't say extensively, but it had certainly been covered in Britain. And subsequently I read that in fact it seemed to proliferate more in Britain than anywhere else, that it seemed to catch on more here than than even in Canada, where it originated. There were people from all over the world, a fairly large number from Britain, but also uh, from Canada, of course, uh, from America, and some from the Far East and Southeast Asia. So uh, I got the sense at that point that it was really a, a universal phenomenon, albeit one that was very much restricted to the evangelical movement.
2: Just a reminder from episode one, evangelicals are the kind of Christians that believe you can become born again and saved from eternal damnation by repenting for your sins and having faith in Jesus Christ. Kathy Lee Gifford, Chris Pratt, Chuck Norris, all of them evangelicals. As Mick and I settled in for our conversation, we talked for a bit about what his personal religious and spiritual beliefs were when he first arrived in Toronto back in 94 before he'd been to his first service, before he'd been in this Toronto Blessing atmosphere, before anything strange happened.
6: Well, I didn't really have an opinion. Uh, I I had a curiosity. Uh, I mean, one of of the things that has always interested me is the nature of spiritual experience. And so I was well acquainted with what you might call the, the transformative effects of faith or the transformative effects of belief.
2: Because Mick went to Toronto during the first year of the revival, he remembers the building where the Toronto Blessing first broke out, that storefront warehouse, right at the end of a runway at Toronto Pearson International Airport.
6: You know, I come from an Anglican tradition where a church looks like a church, and you walk in and there's a, there are pews and there's an altar uh, and there's a cross and there are stained glass windows <laughs> and it's very ritualistic and, yeah, and, you know, and, and you say good morning to the vicar, and it's all rather nice. Um, But this church, uh, you know, looked like a school gymnasium. I mean, there was no ornamentation and no sort of ecclesiastical sort of trappings about it all. Every day, sort of morning, afternoon, and evening, there'd be a a gathering, I hesitate to call it a service, but a gathering where, you know, hundreds of people would sort of crowd into the room. There'd be a, a band playing a uh, kind of rock band type thing playing. And then a pastor would sort of uh, give an address, which uh, by any standards were, were, were tends to be, to my mind, rather sort of prosaic and lumpen and uninspiring. Uh, but, but at the same time, as this was happening, extraordinary things began to occur. Yes, people would start laughing and Jesus. people were falling down on the floor. Uh, people were making animal noises,
1: you, Jesus. <laughs> you, and, Jesus. and it,
6: it sort of grew and grew and grew, like a trickle growing into a stream, into a tide, into an ocean, until it seemed to engulf the whole of the room, and everybody seemed to be engulfed in this uh, in this sort of outpouring of hilarity and peculiarity. What struck me about that, and it was rather amusing, was, was the sort of casual, almost offhand way in which John Arnott moved around the congregation, dispensing this blessing. And uh, I was very struck by the fact that he, he was doing, his wife uh, was with him as he was moving among the, the, the congregation there. And as he was saying things like, and bless this one, Lord, he was to his wife, what time are Wes and Carol coming over for uh, lunch today? And then somebody would fall over and then he'd move on to something... They they coming for dinner, or have we got something in the fridge for them? You know it was this very sort of casual uh, I, I can't really explain it, but it just it just seemed as if it was um it was as casual as an electrician fixing a fuse, you know, having a conversation over his shoulder with somebody. so I was very I was very, very uh, puzzled. Uh, as a journalist, I was very interested um, and uh, very curious.
2: The real guts of Mick Brown's Toronto Blessing experience in just a moment. But I'm curious too, so curious. What was happening to people when they fell down like that? What was happening to me when I fell down like that? In those hockey arenas in Kelowna and Kamloops when I'd meet up with thousands of Christian teenagers. And what if, whatever it was, it wasn't supernatural at all? Here's a couple theories that are interesting to consider. A couple that have really jumped out to me during my research. The absolute simplest possible explanation that I've come across so far is the peer pressure theory. You know, like the youth pastor's wife fell, my friend just fell, so I guess I'm going to fall too. You know, that whole thing, peer pressure, it's simple. And Peer pressure is most definitely a part of all this. I mean, the social awareness, the psychological games that we play with each other, they're not all left at the door during a revival meeting, in my opinion. But my memory of falling does not include noting what others were doing. I remember it as being a very personal moment between me and something outside of myself. A moment of peace and surrender and trust. If I close my eyes today and I think back, I remember what it was like to stand there with my eyes closed, my hands raised, believing without a sliver of a doubt that it was so possible, that it was inevitable that I would fall to the ground at any moment, anticipating it like it was my next breath or something, or the inevitable drop after you get to the very top of a roller coaster. And here's the other non-supernatural theory that I've been considering. It's the hypnosis theory. Now, the hypnosis theory is intriguing. Because in the case of the Toronto Blessing, I gotta say, straight up, there's definitely some similarities here. The Mayo Clinic says, quote, "'Hypnosis is a trance-like state in which you have heightened focus and concentration.' and it's usually achieved through verbal repetition and mental images. There's no denying that repetition is very present in the traditional structure of many Pentecostal and Charismatic church services. It was definitely part of the Toronto Blessing. Growing up in the church, it was completely normal for us to say or sing one word or phrase over and over and over I remember these moments being relaxing and mindful and calm, all of us at the edge of our seats, waiting for God to show up. And I don't know about you, but the idea that hypnosis may have been involved immediately feels ominous or like something deviant was going on, but it doesn't have to be that way. I've been learning that hypnosis can occur on purpose or by accident, and that you don't lose control over your behavior. You simply feel, quote, calm and relaxed and more open to suggestion. And one more thing about the hypnosis theory. When it comes to the Toronto Blessing, it could even potentially explain the claims of physical and emotional healing. Because hypnosis, when used as a therapy, and this could happen purposefully or accidentally, it can help people gain control over addictions, drugs, alcohol, sex, all of it. Hypnosis has also proven to help people cope better with anxiety, depression, and pain. On December 3, 1994, the Daily Telegraph London published Mick Brown's report on the Toronto Blessing. The headline read, Unzipper Heaven, Lord. In it, he describes a woman from St. Albans, Vermont, who, flapping helplessly, spiraled into the outer limits of hilarity. He also describes someone at the back of the room making loud sobbing noises as if they were being stretched on a rack. But it's at the very end of his article that Mick mentions ever so briefly... But something very unexpected happened to him on that trip to Toronto.
6: As I was on the very last, very last session on the last day, by which time I got to know John Arnold and these people very well. Uh, and so I was I was actually sort of moving around in this Battle of Atlanta scene with him, as he was blessing people, as people were falling over, as people were making all these extraordinary noises and laughing like a dream. And Without a by-your-leave, he suddenly, I was writing in my notebook, without by-your-leave, he suddenly turned to me and tapped me on the forehead, just like that. And completely without any kind of volition of my own, I just i just fell on the floor. And I looked across and I saw somebody who I'd been talking to earlier, who I got to know quite well, who saw me. And he, he was laughing hysterically, and laughing hysterically at the fact that I landed on the floor. And I started laughing. And I laughed and I laughed.
2: To this day, Mick's experience that night is part of Toronto Blessing lore, the legend of the sceptical British newspaper reporter who inadvertently had some carpet time. In his widely discussed article, though, Mick only states that he fell. He does not go into any detail whatsoever about what happened after he fell or why he thinks he fell only that he felt a palpable shock and that he fell backwards, as if his legs had been kicked out from under him. For this reason, the true nature of his experience has been left wide open to interpretation. Until now.
6: What I didn't say in the piece was that within, almost it felt like a minute, I had two or three, maybe four people over me, praying over me and holding their hands over me and saying, thank you God, Thank you for coming to the journalist. Thank you for coming to me. Thank you for taking him into your arms and so on and so forth. And do you know what? I was thinking... I won't tell you what I was thinking, but... The context of what I was thinking was, I don't want to be like these people. Don't make me like these people. I didn't want... I didn't want their blessing... I didn't want myself to be proof of their experience because it wasn't proof of what they were claiming it was because I wasn't suddenly infused with the spirit of God. I wasn't suddenly infused with a spirit of sort of um, transcendence or repentance or deliverance or any of those things. I was there thinking about, actually what I quite like to do now is get up and go and have a beer and talk about this with the photographer. <laughs> I wasn't transformed.
2: So he wasn't transformed. But I still have a bunch of questions for Mick. Like, why did he decide to not fully share his experience in his Daily Telegraph article?
6: I wanted to leave it as a mystery for people. I, I didn't want to come to any sort of, uh, I didn't want to come to any kind of conclusion about it. And just, just stylistically, I thought, I thought, hey, it's actually it's much more interesting just to, just to, rather than to sort of write a concluding paragraph that said, hey, folks, didn't work. I got up. Mark, the photographer, and I went off and had a beer. So perhaps I was cheating. You know, there was a sort of bit of an artistic sort of... God, I hate to use the word artistic. There was a bit of a journalistic sort of slate of hand, if you like, in in in, in doing that. But I, I hadn't anticipated that um, people would respond to it.
2: I think in, at this point in, online, I mean, reference to your article comes up so much, and yet I couldn't even find... That online, I had to get the library to print me the digital copy of the article, which to me means that the majority of the people still mentioning today, this year, last year, mentioning this article never even read it. They oh. have taken the legend of it, you know.
6: <laughs> oh boy, um, yeah. I think I think the the the. You're right. I, I couldn't find it online either, and I wrote it. The hard copy is in a shed at the bottom of my garden. But you're right. I mean, it's, people have taken it as, to sort of suggest that um, that I was sort of slain in the spirit, and the, that that um, that I was I was con- converted, or what's the word I'm looking for, Tarot? It's not converted, transformed.
2: That you were that you were saved, that you were moved. I saved. Thank
6: you. That's the word. Saved. Yeah, yeah. That I was saved in that moment. But Lord, I'm still a sinner yet. You know.
2: So if it wasn't God. Why does Mick think he fell?
6: I fell because I think I was caught up in the moment. I was caught up in, in the, the, I don't want to say the spirit, I was caught up in the contagion of the moment. I think that's why I fell. And whether it was because at some subconscious level I felt that I had to fall after being hit on the head because I'd seen lots of other people falling after being hit on the head. Perhaps I even felt... It would be rather impolite not to fall, having been hit on the head. <laughs> uh, so perhaps at some level I was sort of—I um, I, was—I was being accommodating rather than, um, you know, engulfed in the spirit. But I fell, and I laughed, but I, I wasn't born again in that moment. I'm afraid to say, or I'm rather pleased to say, I should say. As I explained, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not immune to the possibility of experience. I'm not immune to the possibility of transformation. I'm not immune to the possibility of miracles. And I wouldn't want to take anybody's faith away from them by my experience. But I can only tell you what happened with me. And in the context of that event, in that moment, what happened to me did not affirm anything that the people there believed it to be and believed it would affirm. But I didn't feel, I have to say, I I, I didn't really warm to these people. There's something about that sort of um, evangelical fervor that doesn't sit right with me, not to put too fine a point on it. And there was a lot of evangelical fervor in the room.
2: And 25 years later, what does Mick Brown ultimately think was happening in Toronto.
6: I think the key element that would contribute to that would be expectation. There was a very strong sense among the people that I'd spoken to that they had come expecting to witness this phenomenon and to be part of this phenomenon. They wouldn't have been there otherwise. I mean, this whole this whole conference, this whole event, and and as I subsequently came to think, wherever this manifestation was occurring would have been primed with expectation you know it wasn't as if these people were coming into it in a completely neutral fashion i mean these were people who believed and who had been told or had evidence of or had seen or participated in in their various churches from around the world have participated in this event and seen it as some sort of affirmation of their belief and as some sort of refreshing of their belief and so there was a very high sense of anticipation and expectation that surrounded the whole weekend. And that was certainly acute at those moments when everybody was gathered together in this huge ballroom and the service would begin and the music would begin. And there was almost a sense of, okay, who's going to be the first person to fall over? Who's going to be the first person to start laughing? Oh, here it comes, there's a laugh. Oh, and there's a woman crowing like a chicken. Oh, that's interesting. There's a man over there roaring like a lion. It began to snowball as the effect, of course, began to snowball. It was very contagious.
2: Next time on Heaven Bent. Oh my goodness, honey. I track the spread of the Toronto blessing. All of a sudden, everything that had been going on up in that room in Toronto started happening right in our little church. I mean, this is a teeny weeny church.
1: And while they were waiting, Toronto explodes in the room. People started to laugh, shake, fall. Now, of course, this is a, this happened all over the world, but it happened in Grimsby, Ontario. Now, Lord,
2: more,
4: more, 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 Lord, more Lord Jesus. Now.
2: And did the Toronto Blessing trigger the largest and longest running revival in American history?
5: Just get back. I've had God hit people already in this place, thrown to the ground. They're in heaven right now. They are not in Pensacola. Just stay open to the Lord. Don't leave.